This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. On the program today, I'm speaking with an actor who has worked in the performing arts for over 25 years. He's covered off all the theatre companies, whether it's the Sydney Theatre Company, Bell Shakespeare, Griffin and the Ensemble. He's worked in film and television and his voice is familiar to us on animations and TV ads. His name is Jamie Oxenbold and he's back at the Ensemble Theatre to star in a new play that he's co-written with the Ensemble's artistic director, Mark Kilmurray. It's called Midnight Murder at Hamlington Hall. It's on from December 1 and I'm grateful that as they get to the pointy end of rehearsals, he's managed to find the time to be in conversation with me today. Jamie Oxenbold, a very warm welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Simon. Now, as I understand it, there is a murder, but this is a comedy. It's a comedy and there are several murders. Several? Yeah, and there is a murderer who I I obviously won't divulge. It's a fun take... I wouldn't say it's send-up, but it's a fun take on the genre of, you know, murder mysteries, Agatha Christie-type hoary old plays like that, like uh, Mousetrap and those sorts of yes, things. It so goes through all the tropes. It so. goes through all... It, we <laughs> we mine every trope, every cliché for all it's worth. And so it's a fun take on those. Yeah. And, and it is a theatrical setting, I understand. Yeah, so it's based in a community hall where the Midland Cove Players, who are an amateur theatre company, are putting on their version of an Agatha Christie, you know, murder mystery play, and it's called Midnight Murder at Hamlington Hall, and this is their opening night. And a lot of things go wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I won't give too much away, but cast members don't turn up and we have to um, replace cast members and uh, things fall off the wall. And it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like Noises Off, Mm. a little bit like the play that goes wrong. I was wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, so it's taking a little bit of all of that and just setting it in a very Australian setting of an amateur theatre company. I'm worried this hasn't, uh, isn't a personal story that you're trying to tell, is it? (laughs) Uh, Well... There's no one's no one's been killed just before a show, have they? Oh no, no. Well, God, you know, well with COVID, you know, I mean, yeah. everyone, every theatre company in Sydney's had their, you know, people dropping out of the last people minute, dropping yeah. out and people having to go on with books and things going wrong. So it's a familiar story. Yeah. Um, but we haven't had any touchwood. We haven't had any problems so far. <laughs> so why did you want to create this play with Mark Kamari? Well, Mark and I have have done a lot of shows together at the Ensemble. We've done. Gosh, I don't know how many shows together now, but a bunch, mostly comic sort of things. And we've both got a very similar sense of humour. And we'd always wanted to do, we'd always had this dream about doing the great Australian farce because mm. we're both fans of farce and slapstick and physical comedy and, and things like that going wrong. But we don't tend to do those sorts of plays all that much. I can't even think of one. I mean, Dim Ball is a little bit like that, but that's going back to the 70s, I think. Mm. So we don't tend to do a lot of that and we just wanted to do a really Australian version of something like those great English farces, the Joe Orton sort of farces that, you know, noises off and those sorts of things. So we'd had a dream to do this and so that's, I guess, where the idea came from and and we thought what's the best um, genre to send up and murder, a murder mystery play seemed um, the obvious choice. <laughs> now, you've co-written this with Mark and Mark is, of course, also directing the show so mm. you are kind of the, the creative team. You said I mean, you've got the same sense of humour but uh, tell me about how that creative process unfolds like when you, you're co-writing or co-creating something. Well, it's tricky. I've done it a couple of times with other writers and it's tricky because someone always ends up 
having the sort of main voice because you can't just sit there and go, well, right line, and then, oh, then that person says that. Oh, what if that person says that? Yeah, I mean, I, like I, don't, I can't work like, I don't think many people work like that. Yeah. So really it's just conversations about, you know, what we think is going to be funny. I, then I went away and sort of did the first draft of, you know, from all our conversations, and then we read that, and it's obviously very different from that. We talked about characters, so we settled on characters, the tone of it and things like that. Really, we talked for ages and ages before we started writing. So I went away and did sort of a first draft and from that we've just sort of tweaked it and honed it and mostly cut lots of stuff. And then when the cast come in, obviously that's a whole new, you know, set of eyes and set of yes. brains so on it. So does that rehearsal process actually start to change? Yeah, yeah, quite drastically. Sometimes I'm not that happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, as a writer, you get you're so precious. You know the yeah. the phrase "you kill your darling." Wasn't my line? Yeah, yeah. I, that's not how I wrote it. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, you've changed the to end and things like that. It, it's you get very precious about that because you slave over it for a long time, and then actors come in and just kind of not trash it, but just make it their own, which is great. Which is what should happen. Yeah. And yeah, but that process is sometimes like. Um, a little bit difficult. Yeah, and you're not having a dig at amateur theatre companies, are you? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, quite quite the opposite. I think it's a love letter to amateur oh, yeah. theatre because because my parents grew up. Uh, I mean, grew up. I grew up watching my parents um, in amateur theatre a lot, so I've been around it sort of a lot as a child. So I've got a great love and admiration for amateur theatre companies and their passion, their sort of pure passion that they have for it. I, I, I admire and am really, really happy that people are out there doing it. You know, sometimes it's not brilliant and that doesn't matter because they love what they're doing. And that's kind of what we wanted to tap into really, mm. is it's about a group of people doing something that they're incredibly passionate about against all odds, you know, against all the odds of things going wrong, um, cast not turning out, forgetting lines, lights not working, for things falling off the walls, which is kind of the things that amateur theatre companies have to deal with, you know, not having all the all the bells and whistles. And get through often quite brilliantly. Yeah, and get through, and if not brilliantly, at least incredibly committedly, <laughs> which is kind of what I love about it, yeah. Great. Well, our first track of music now, Jamie, and uh, what have you got for us first? Uh, the first one I've picked is Everything But The Girl, an uh, English band, and their song Oxford Street. Where did you f- discover this? Um, so it's the English Oxford Street, the London Oxford Street, not yeah. the uh, Sydney Oxford Street. No, not Sydney Oxford Street. So it's, a, it's I think they're from the 80s, the, everything, but the girl, we, well, we listened to them a lot. Me and my partner lived with someone who introduced this band, who was English, who introduced this band to us. And it was before we'd gone overseas. So we were, must have been very young. And A, the lyrics of it, I just think are really beautiful. The first opening lines are... When I was 10, uh, I thought my brother was God. I, he'd lie in bed at night, turn out the light with his fishing rod. And, <laughs> and it's just, it's, I, I just found it a really evocative song with, with beautiful lyrics. And as a young actor too, the, the dream of going to London was, it was because, you know, because I'm very, very old. LA wasn't a thing when we were young. It was like if you wanted to go overseas, then the dream of going overseas was going to London not going to LA to work. So this um, song is just a really melancholy song about growing up and about the difference between small town and 
Oxford Street, the big city of London. And I just, it just resonated with me because I thought, oh yeah, imagine going to London and ever walking down Oxford Street. And then when we eventually did go to London, when me and my partner, when we were in our early twenties, we got to Oxford Street and, and we were playing this song and we'd play it all the time and go, we're here, we're here in Oxford Street, yeah. London. And it was, it was such a big deal to us to be in Trafalgar Square and to see, you know, red buses and everything. It was, a, it was, it just meant a lot to us, you know. We never, we never became actors over there. We just we were tourists, but it meant a lot to me. Yeah. When I was ten, I thought my brother was God. He'd lie in bed, turn out the light with a fishing rod. I learned the names of all his football team, and I still remembered them. When I was Girl with Oxford Street, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Jamie Oxenbold. He is appearing and has co-written Midnight Murder at Hamlington Hall, which is on at the Ensemble Theatre from December 1. Get along to ensemble.com.au for more information and for tickets. So, Jamie, you talked about, you know, wanting to go to London to be an actor, at least, like that idea of London yeah. being the pinnacle. What was your journey to the profession? Gosh, it's a long and involved one. Well, my parents were, were both involved in amateur theatre, like I said, said yeah. so... I guess I got a bit of an introduction to it through that, not wanting to ever do it, but just sitting around watching them rehearse. And So what were their day jobs um, if they uh, were doing amateur theatre? Um, my mum was uh, a nurse and then she owned, uh, she had run a costume shop and my dad was a banker, worked in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was, their, it, was, it was just their passion. It was just their love that they loved yeah. amateur theatre and mostly musicals. They loved to sing and do that sort of stuff. So your younger brother's also an actor too. So did you come both come to it at the same time? Or? At, well, a little bit because we were both, we'd both go and watch them rehearse. So we had a sort of introduction to it. And me more than him, like loved, just fell in love with the theatre and I was just gobsmacked. My, I think that was where I got my, you know, love for it. But then Ben, my younger brother, started acting when he was a child. When he was um, 10, he did Fatty Finn. Ah, right. Yeah, so he started acting very young. And I think because of that, I, you know, maybe thought it seemed like possible to have a career in it, but but I never really thought about it. And then I started doing plays at school and just loved doing it. And really fell into it, really. Well, I f- actually, I fell into, before theatre, I fell into doing voiceover work. Oh, so you're doing the voiceover work before the yeah. live work? Like as soon as I left school, I started I started writing um, for some uh, radio and mm-hmm. TV shows and things like that and doing a lot of voiceover work. And that was my sort of introduction to showbiz. And then I started doing theatre work after that. 
So yeah. did you have any formal training for that or did you just basically pick it up on the job as it were? Mostly picked it up on the job. I did some classes, some acting classes, but they were pretty informal right. and uh, they were mostly just... A few hours on a Saturday morning kind of thing. It was a little bit like that. <laughs> no, no, there were night schools at yeah. nights and it was mostly people just wanting to go and uh, get together and get drunk and... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You did that, but then you also got the job afterwards. So yeah, but good. then I then I continued on continued on with it, and yeah, have been doing it. For so, how did you identify voice workers? The thing to start off in again, uh, fell into it through someone through actually through my through my partner's sister was doing voiceovers, and they were just looking for some younger voices to do something, and we sort of put our hands up because we were young actors wanting to get work, and really just fell into it and just and really enjoyed it because I, I love doing voiceover work. I think yeah. it's really good fun. It's really, um, you know, no one sees you. You don't have to get dressed up and especially animation. I've done a lot of animation yeah. to, um, and that's, I think, it's the most fun job in the world. So really, again, just fell into it through luck and through knowing someone and then... And then after you, you do it, you, you then get asks back, I assume. If you do it, yeah. If you do, if you do the right job, yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. If you can do a good job and if you can do it and if you learn quickly, you know, I think, I think any any jobs like that. Yeah. But uh, I picked it up quickly. I picked up how to do how to do voice. How to walk into a studio and get it done in yeah. five minutes and yeah. you're out of there. And... Yeah, because that's all they want is for yeah. you to hand you a script and do it quickly and then... They're not after the motivation of the character. No, no. <laughs> so once you once you know, people know you can do it, then you start to get work and then I kind of made a, made a career out of that. So moving into actual theatre, for instance, was there a particular first gig as a result of the voiceover work? No, not as a vo- result of voiceover. I always wanted to do theatre and I had always... You know, that was always my goal. Oh, from the high school days? Yeah, from high school, mm. yeah. And from the acting classes, I thought that's... And I knew that theatre was, was my, you know, love. The first play that I auditioned for, I auditioned for a play out at the... I mean, I was still quite young. I think I was only 19 or 20. A play out at the Q Theatre, mm. which was which was quite big back then. It's smaller now. It's kind of lost. It's kind of based, still based at the Joan in Penrith. But, but it was quite an ongoing concern there. had a full subscription season. And uh, I auditioned for a play and did my first play out at the Q Theatre when I was 19. And was that like a walk-on part? Or a, no, no, it was quite a big... It was, uh, it was Are You Lonesome Tonight, the Australian oh. uh, Pamela Van Amstel play yeah. uh, with a great cast of, you know, I was really lucky. I lucked into it like a... And I was playing the younger brother. And it's about this family who were obsessed with Elvis Presley and I was playing the younger younger brother in the family. Were you into Elvis Presley or did, was the character like the anti-Elvis Presley? No, no, he was like so, we were so into the whole family, the whole was family. obsessed. So I, we had to learn all these. I had to sing an Elvis Presley song and we all, yeah, well, I went down a whole Elvis Presley rabbit hole. Well, there's no Elvis Presley on the, the playlist today. No. So I think you got that out of your system. <laughs> um, who were the mentors that you had? Were there any mentors when you were starting out in the industry? I guess someone who I really looked up to, I, the, I did a couple of plays with John Ewing, Who's a great Australian actor now, now dead, actor and then director. You know, amazing. Did La Caja Fall and some oh, big yeah. musicals. You know, just an incredible spirit and energy. <laughs> he directed me in a couple of plays, a couple of Neil Simon plays, Biloxi Blues and Broadway Bound. Two of the plays in the trilogy. The the other one is um, Brighton Beach Memoirs. So I did Biloxi Blues and Broadway Bound with him. And again, I was really young. I think I was in my early 20s probably, and uh, he was just very kind to me and just a very strong director. Like he's a very, he was very opinionated, knew exactly what he wanted, but he was, he was just kind to me and taught me a lot about Mm. acting because I didn't have a lot of experience. I went in pretty green to (laughs) theatre 
I, the character I played in Biloxi Blues had to sing in it. This is just an example of how kind yeah. he was. <laughs> had to sing in it, and he he thought he was a nightclub singer. This, and he had a New Jersey accent, so I had to sing all these songs, like crooning songs, like Tangerine, you know, all these songs like that. And I'm not a singer, and I thought I was doing like a, quite a good job, you know. And one day I, I said, "Am I singing too well for the, you know, for this character?" <laughs> and he just and he took me aside, like very kindly went, "No, no, what you're doing is perfect." <laughs> <laughs> And I realised in hindsight I was awful and he was like being, being really nice. Damned with faint praise. Yeah, I think. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, our next track of music now, Jamie, and we're going to the classical genre with Ray Fawn Williams and The Lark Ascending. Why would you like us to hear yeah, this? Yeah, wow. What a, what a, um, contrast to the last track. Contrast to the last track <laughs> and a bold choice. Um, look, I'm, I'm not a classical music guy. So having to think of some th- songs, which was great, having to think about them, I had to rack my brains, but this song just uh, kind of in, made me, kind of introduced me to classical music, I think, because it was on the soundtrack of The Year My Voice Broke. It's just a beautiful piece of music, and I didn't know it at all. I just watched the movie and I loved the movie. I thought, you know, it's one of our great films. And the, sound, and the use of, the, of this music, which is so lilting and, and evocative in that film, I just thought was amazing. I thought just it's... And it was it was over that landscape. It was over that that braidwood, you know, and it was shot all around there over that beautiful landscape, and and it was shot half at night, so it was really, it was so such a moody um, um, film, and I just thought that music was beautiful. So I looked it up and went and listened to it, listened to the whole track after I saw the movie, and it's just always stayed with me, and it's just always been on my Spotify list. Not that I always listen to it, but it's always in there, and I go, oh yeah, this piece of music, it's just. I just think it's an incredibly evocative piece of classical music and I guess introduced me to fine music.
Richard Tonietti, the violinist, playing, of course, with the Australian Chamber Orchestra for part of The Lark Ascending from Rafe Vaughan-Williams. The choice of my guest in conversation today, actor and writer Jamie Oxenbold. Now, Jamie, uh, I want to go back a bit to the writing, maybe not just of Midnight Murder at Hamlington Hall, but perhaps writing more generally and writing comedy. I mean, performing comedy is hard, much harder than it looks, and oh, writing absolutely. must be harder. It is. How do you judge it? Uh, I don't... I... Honestly, don't know. I had a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> <laughs> practice makes perfect. Practice writing <laughs> things which aren't funny and then just putting them in the bottom drawer. But do you know they're not funny or do you try them out and you go and they, they just don't land and you go, oh, well, that's obviously not funny. Well, That's what I, I suppose I'm talking about. Well, when I was young, I wrote for the Doug Mulray show, which was a radio show on Triple M. So you wrote sketches and so every week you'd write sketches and hand them in and that either get used or not. Right. So it was a, it was a, that was a really good litmus test of, yes. you know, oh, this is funny because people sit around and read it and go, yep, we'll take that one. And then you don't get paid for what you, you know, you didn't get paid. Oh, you only get paid for the ones that get taken. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a really Gosh. good, yeah, it was hard. <laughs> it was a really good incentive to like, you know, go. Be funny. Yeah, you've got to be funny. I, want, I need to make some money. So that was pretty good training. I did that for a few years and it was good to know what lands, you know, it's good to yeah. know how to write a short joke because that was for radio. So it was, but to answer your question, I don't really, I, I think, you know, part of me thinks you, you just have funny bones or you don't, uh -huh. you know, some people say, say you've got funny bones or you've been hit with a funny stick, you know, those sayings that I think part of that is true. You just, you, you can either do it or you can't. Yeah. It's not like, I don't think you can learn some of the, a lot of this stuff. It's just instinctive. It's a lot of it's instinctive mm. and I don't, and I don't think about it too much. And the other thing I think is really important. If I'm trying to write funny, I write what makes me laugh. Not, mm. oh, I think someone will find this funny. I then ever, I think that's a real dangerous road to go. And I just write stuff that I think is funny. And if I, and if I think it's funny, then that's kind of enough. Yeah. And even if other people don't and they go, I don't get this, it's a bit weird, or, you know, then I go, okay, yeah, move on to something else. <laughs> uh, you don't get precious about it. But in the rehearsal process, for instance, I mean, you're talking about, you know, you guys are making changes to Midnight Murders mm. at Hamilton Hall. I mean, I know a joke explained is a joke ruined, but mm. do you ever have to kind of go, oh, no, 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 this is what it's supposed to mean and this is why it's funny? Or Only very occasionally. Very occasionally do people go, not, like not get it and have to explain it and uh, yeah. not in something like this because it's so in Hamlington because it, it's so broad you know it's a very it's not it's like this surreal comedy or anything like that it's very broad so everything's pretty on the page and the actors when they come to it general like you know I would say 95% of the time improve it anyway right you know it's not like because it is delivery and timing too. Oh, so especially this play because it's a because it's a farce yeah. and a farce is all timing. You know, yeah. anything slapsticky farcey is. But I'm also thinking back to um, I think it's the parrot sketch from Monty Python, and I thought there's one of them was describing one of the writers was describing the fact that they were they couldn't go to that particular meeting that writers meeting and they they left it with John Cleese or whoever it was or John Cleese mm. I can't remember which which of them it was but they looked at it on this piece of paper in this meeting and thought this isn't funny at all and they just tossed it aside and it was only when it was performed that yeah, it became exactly. funny yeah yeah so tell me about that art <laughs> well i i wrote another well, co-wrote another play with Richard Sydenham a few years ago called Gods and Little Fishes which we thought was hilarious and <laughs> but on the page to other people just read as a very melancholy and sort of dark play but we thought was much funnier than than it actually was so 
Yeah, it's so much in the interpretation. When we ended up putting it up and putting it on his feet, it was very funny. But, yeah, on the page, sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes things just don't read funny. And actually we wrote a, I've written another thing which we've sent out to, you know, people to try and get up because, you know, we're trying to get this play up. And it's mostly monologues, sort of Alan Bennett-style monologues. And, um, again, me and my co-writer, Mary Rachel Brown, think it's hilarious, but other people just think it's weird, But whereas we read it and uh, hysterical. And so, oh, God, it's so subjective, isn't it, comedy? Mm. We think it's hilarious, but people who have read it said, eh, it's really strange. So, I don't know. You win some, you lose some with those. I guess, <laughs> I guess so. But when you're on stage performing a comedy, do you actually find it uh, harder to keep a straight face or, or is it more that so you actually find it harder to keep a straight face when you're doing a drama and the comedy, you've been through the joke so many times? that Yeah, I find it much harder in, in a drama to, because you want to laugh because <laughs> yeah. in, in you're so super serious about something and if something little goes wrong or, you know, phone goes off in the audience or you know, someone burps or something happens, that's when <laughs> it breaks. It breaks, yeah, it breaks. It snaps the, you know, the drama of it. I find that funnier. I don't really find it hard to not to laugh because we've, you've done it so many times, you know, you've heard the joke so many times. And as you were saying, comedy is, is all timing mm. and is all precision. There's no room for messiness like there is in drama. There's no room for in drama. You can um and ah and emote and, and you know, you can try and work feelings out. You can't do that in comedy. It's just like, yeah, just got to be bang, 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 bang. And as soon as it goes bang, 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 it, it's not funny. So I think you've got to be much more focused and much more precise. So that's why I don't find it funny because I think it's harder. It's mm. much harder work. Mm. Our next piece of music now, Jamie. And uh, like the, I, I suspect this is another one from your earlier days. It is. I'm a massive Paul Weller fan. Have been since my brother, older brother, introduced me to the jam, and uh, then the Style Council are now solo, and I'm going to see him next year when he comes out here. I just think he's the he's the mod father. He's just the absolute. I just love his voice, and I've just loved him all my life. And and the Paris match. This version is from I think it's from introducing the Style Council, which is or it might be from Cafe Bleu, one of their two very early albums. And I just love his voice. And I see with everything, I've picked a couple of melancholy songs and with also my next one too, there's a lot of <laughs> melancholy on there. I just love the melancholy of it. And like my earlier one that we played when we went to Europe, we played this song because it's about Paris and it's got, and I was a pretentious young actor and it's got some French in it, French singing in it. And it's about Paris and about desire and love. We played it a lot when we first went to Paris and we thought it was very romantic and very Parisian.
The Style Council and Paul Weller with the Paris match. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Jamie Oxenbold. Jamie, does that mean you were sort of strolling around Paris with a striped shirt and a beret and a baguette under your arm? Oh, we were that close to <laughs> I had a striped shirt and I had a big long coat like Paul Weller used to wear, a big long black coat. I had suspenders. I was such a... I probably had Jean-Paul Sartre in my pocket. I don't, we, were, we, were such, we were such pretentious With the title young, pointing out. Yeah, right, yeah. So right the people could, yeah. Open it up on the... Sit on those tables with a coffee and open it so that people could see. Well, you're very fortunate people didn't have iPhones at the time. Too, yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, we've got the photos, don't oh, worry. You do have we get them out and show our kids every now and then and they go, what were you thinking? Uh, yes, I'm sure they'll be doing the same thing in 20 years' time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like to ask stage actors this question about keeping performances fresh no matter how many times you're out there doing it each night. How do you deal with that challenge? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I like to imagine... Uh, I can't remember who it was, but someone was one of the older actors that I worked with said, these people are seeing it for the first time. And someone else also said that this, particularly because a lot of theatre audiences are older, this might be the last play that they ever see. And so I know it's a kind of a, it's kind of an awful thing to think. No one said that to me before. (laughs) But it's true. This might be the last play that this person ever sees. Well, anyone ever sees, yeah. Yeah. So... Sometimes I think about things like that and go... And you, don't, you don't want it to be the right last play they see because of what you guys are doing up there, though. No, no. Yeah, no. Well, maybe <laughs> Never coming back to the theatre ever again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so sometimes I think about things like that. Yeah. Like, so we've done it, we rehearsed it and done it 50 times, but, you know, it's this person's first experience of it. So that kind of gives me a little uh, flutter inside, like, oh, this person doesn't know this story, never seen mm. this, especially for a new play like Hamilton or if, whenever you're doing a, a new work. Doing new work I actually find easier because it's always fresher and no one has seen this play, so it's there is a, always a frisson with new work anyway, I think. Mm. Even when you've done your 50 shows, you still there's something um, exciting about doing a new play, which no one's ever done before. Um, the other thing I sometimes do is this is a terrible thing to do but I, if there's someone in the audience who I know or sometimes from the industry or another actor coming along I find that really good impetus to mm-hmm. give you a bit of a burst of energy and you know like oh I'm performing for so and so you know we always make the joke that John Bell's in tonight you know <laughs> everyone makes this theatre joke <laughs> yeah. oh John Bell's in tonight so you know everyone's on their, oh, their, best on their toes yes. a little toes. bit yes so that's kind well, of well. That's a, a good way of putting it because you don't know who that person in the audience is. No, yeah. So you just—that's just very standard <laughs> theatre joke in Sydney. John's internet. We've got to be good, you know. <laughs> Does John know this? <laughs> I don't know actually. <laughs> well, I have to make sure. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Pass it on. <laughs> <laughs> a place like the Ensemble, you've got audiences on three sides basically. Mm. Um, generally, um, and in other theatres, obviously, it's more. You've got uh, there's that fourth wall effect. Do you get different kinds of feedback? from the audience in those different sorts of spaces? And does that affect how you might be doing a play? I think people, when you're in the round like that and at Griffin, the, the stables, yeah. for instance, where they... And yeah, Belvoir is a bit like that. Yeah, you're on both sides. You can definitely hear the audience. There's no... Yeah, like if you're on at the Playhouse at the Opera House, you can't hear people sniff and cough and, and chat and... And mobile phones. Yeah, and mobile phones. You can't, you can't hear it because you're behind, you know, you're just, you know... And also that's the kind of thing you can only see the first two rows. Yeah, it's just, it's just darkness out there. Yeah. But, yeah, when you can see people's faces like you can at the ensemble, there's definitely... There's an investment. You know, they're much more invested in the show, I think, and so they have that feeling that maybe they can chat and and, and talk back. And, yeah, it's definitely a completely different experience because they're so close uh, and it's kind of frightening at first 
you know, when you come out the first time and you see people's legs are on stage. And then it's kind of great, I think, for most plays, and particularly for our play, because our play is a set in an amateur theatre company in a community hall where the people are part of the play. So mm. it works perfectly for us. We've kind of written it with that in mind, with an audience, not audience participation, but that the audience are very much part of the Show. What about that feedback? Like I'm thinking in a comedy, for instance, particularly in a comedy where, you know, other friends I have who are actors, you know, some nights they say, oh, wow, the audience was just really going off. And then other nights the audience just feels flat in comparison. How do you get through that? Because that must be a challenge when, you know, you think, oh, this is, we're being really funny and they're just kind of yeah. sitting there. Yeah, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. And, it, and weirdly enough, it happens on similar nights of the week. Really? Like sometimes, yeah, sometimes. Wednesday night audiences no, are. No, during the week. <laughs> don't laugh. Saturday night's always a tough night. Really? Yeah. I thought that'd be a bit more relaxed. I no, I don't know. It's, and I think that's across the board. I think that's uh, Friday night's always a really good night. Matinees. Like Sunday matinees, weekday matinees, always great. Are they? Yeah, because I think because, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know. It's the science of an audience, you know. I think there's, it's, a, there's, there's a, a thesis scientific in, paper in this. <laughs> definitely a study in it because sometimes or sometimes also Friday nights, the end of the week is a bit, people f- feel a bit drained. Right. You know, I think because it's the end of the week and they go, oh, we're going to the theatre tonight. Oh, people are a bit tired. Saturday night, you would think it would be raucous, but it's for some reason... I think maybe because they're, this is my theory, is that they're, they're more sort of theatre literate and they've, they've booked it a long time out and they're expecting something. So they're just a bit more standoffish and like, okay, so let's see what you got yeah. rather than wanting, wanting to be entertained. Interesting. Yeah. So I think the dealing with it is just um, is pushing on, <laughs> pushing, <laughs> going, going faster. <laughs> but I, I kind of imagine that, like, you know, in a comedy particularly, you know, sometimes you, you've re- the way you've rehearsed or the way you've performed it before, there are those beats, those pauses because there's laughter. There's, you know there's going to be laughter. Mm. And so you have those little moments, but then you don't, you're not getting anything back. And yeah. so it's like, okay, I'll just go on. Then yeah. <laughs> That's when you all look at each other on stage with those panicked eyes and go make the <laughs> silent signals for... We just go fast. Just go fast. Yeah. <laughs> just get it over with. So what's the strangest thing that's ever happened to you on stage in a, in a show? Uh, someone took a phone call once in the middle of a show down when I was doing a show downstairs at Belvoir Street and their phone rang and they just picked it up, started talking Hello. very loudly as if like they were just at home and just took it and walked out. And everyone on stage and in the audience was just like so befuddled with what just happened. And then we just all looked at each other like, that was weird. Did that really happen? And then just went on with the play. Um, that was odd. Someone, uh, when people have like medical, you know, things Ooh. is always odd. It's not nice, but it's very strange. Like I've done a couple of shows where you just have to stop. You have to stop the show. Stop the show. Someone gets taken out and then you have to pick it up again. Mm. And then the whole vibe of the show is like, especially if it's a comedy you know, then everyone's a bit on edge and it's like, ooh, you know, like if you see a car accident or something awful on the street, you know, it's that kind of that vibe. It's a weird, it's a very weird feeling in the audience, in the in the whole theatre. So that's pretty weird. On the opening night of a play at the Ensemble, I was doing a play with Sharon Millerchip, a two-hander, and on opening night I meant to jump on the couch and um, I was meant to kiss her and I jumped on the couch and head-butted her with my mouth in her forehead and split her head open oh. and well, she started bleeding from the head and I started bleeding from my mouth and we had to continue on. 
<laughs> and so I had, I had this huge speech, did it with a big fat lip, and we didn't know that we were bleeding or, or how hard we'd hit each other until we came off stage. But That is weird. You mentioned that our next track was more melancholy, so let's have a listen to it, Jamie. What is this one? Oh, wow, this is as melancholy as they come. I just <laughs> realised how melancholy all these And the title are. Is, is quite portentous, if I can say. At the chime of a city clock, yeah. Uh, this is Nick Drake. So Nick Drake, I didn't know, I'd never heard of until um, a flatmate, an English flatmate of ours, introduced me to him. He's probably more well-known in England because he had a very big burst of fame when he was young and he unfortunately died very young and he only put out, I think, three albums in his lifetime and he lived a troubled life. He was a very troubled soul. And um, as soon as I heard him, I just, I, I, I love melancholy music. I love music that's evocative like this to listen to, go on walks and listen to and put on in the car and for long drives. That's my real sort of go-to for music. So I guess that's why I chose this one. It's a beautiful song and I love his story even though it's a very sad one. He was just so committed to, to making this incredibly perfect music and he was so committed that he just couldn't, you know, felt like he couldn't um, go on anymore. So it's a sad story but, but also beautiful and it's a beautiful song. A city freeze, get on your knees Pray for warmth and green paper a city drought, you're down and out I see your trousers don't taper I saddle up, I kick your feet I ride the range of a London street I travel to a local plane I turn around and come back And at the chime of a city clock I put up your roadblock I hang on to your ground For a stone in a tin can Is wealth to the city man Who leaves his arm down With neighbors only For games you play Make people say You're either weird or lonely A city star Won't shine too far On account of the way you are And the beats Around your face Make you sure to fade back in grace And at the beat of a city drum See how your friends come in twos or threes or more For the sound of a busy place Is fine for a pretty face Who knows what a face is for Chime of a City Clock from Nick Drake, the choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Jamie Oxenbold. Well, Jamie, as all the best actors do, you've done your stint on Play School. Yes, I have. <laughs> no, you, you've done a deep dive into did, my career. Do you think that's a great, I always think, is that a great leveller for actors? 
Because it has to be actually one of the more challenging things to do, right? It, it's pro- I think it's the most challenging thing I've ever done. Yeah, I would say because I was quite, I was fairly young when I did it. Well, I wasn't that young, but you know, I was youngish side. And when I was doing it, they did it all in one take. So you just really? had, yeah, you had to learn the whole script. You had to learn. So that. you're doing it like a live show. You're doing it like a live show, yeah, because that's how they wanted to treat. And you only stopped if something you know catastrophic went wrong. So it was like doing a half-hour live show. You had to learn the script and you couldn't, and you, there's no improvising. You have to learn it word for word. Oh, right. So it's not sort of a bit of just you need to get from A to B and how you get there is... No. No? No. It's, it's written because it, it's, you know, it's got to go through children's education people and you know, you've got to be saying the right phrase and you've got to phrase things the right way. And if you, it was left up to people to improvise, then... <laughs> anything would <laughs> be possible. <laughs> I'm not, I think it might be a bit looser now. You know, this was a while ago that I did it. But it was, yeah, incredibly challenging. Yeah, incredibly challenging thing to do. To be honest, I wasn't very good at it, I don't think. Why don't you think that? Uh, I just, like, I watched people who were really good at it. Like I did I did some with, with Noni and... and the Mon- big names. Yeah, and Monica <laughs> and, and Trapago and, and just watching them do it, you go, oh, wow, you guys are like just, it's second nature. I think if you do it long enough, I didn't do it long enough to, to get second nature. Yeah. You know, because it's all so, about the style of delivery yeah, that you've got to get into. Yeah, and, and it just becomes, once it becomes really, and because you're looking at, at a camera, you know, you're staring, you're telling the stories to a camera. Which actors generally are told not to do. Yeah, which is just really hard and you've got to be so personal. And I think I was a bit performative or something with it. I, yeah, it, it wasn't, I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> it's not my finest hour. <laughs> if you say so. But something you are definitely very good at, and that is providing voices. Uh, we mentioned the voiceovers, but you also touched on the uh, animations, uh, doing characters for yeah. that. And I, I had a look at your showreel, and it is quite phenomenally brilliant, I have to say. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> of, of, of all the voices for those characters. But there is something about, as opposed to doing a, a voiceover for an ad, mm. doing character voices. Tell me about that process. Because um, you're not just showing up like you are when you're doing a, a voiceover, are you? No, no. So you get the scripts and you get, you know, you get a bit of, a bit of rehearsal and, and you get to sit there. Uh, and with the voice director or the, the animation director and say, okay, this voice is like Flipper, for instance. One of the animations they did was called Flipper and La Parker. And, you know, they show you that the pictures of a shark or a stingray and you sit there with the other actors and go, okay, what is it, what's it going to sound like? And you play with voices and you play with, you know, maybe impressions that you can do and find a, you know, find a little or other famous animation performances that you might love and they, they all sort of feed into what you what you might do and then eventually find a voice and and then you do and then you record it and and then you say no that didn't quite work and go back and do it again so the it's it's a lot of um discovery and kind of making mistakes and because you've got the time you've got the you know it's easy to do it's just on you know you don't have to, you're not filming anything you're just no. in a studio so and there aren't dozens of people waiting around and for you no, to, to yeah, get it. If you know no, no, the, they're, yeah, yeah, they're waiting to, oh, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's not 30 people there going, get it right. So you can, there's there's room to play, I think. Right. And so you're showing the, the images of the characters so that can kind of inform the voice that you'll give yeah, that character. Yeah. So where are you actually getting the, have you met these people, do you think, sometimes or are there bits of your past or uh, are you se- are you kind of taking off a celebrity for some of them? Some oh, Definitely for some of them, yeah. <laughs> definitely uh, like the Stingray and Flipper, I think I was trying to do my uh, Marlon Brando. <laughs> <laughs> but because I don't do a great Marlon Brando, it's kind of like just roughly in the area of Marlon Brando. And so, yeah, definitely sometimes they're just impressions because 
when I first started doing animation, it was with Keith Scott and Robin Moore, who are two just absolute legends of the voiceover industry. Keith Scott, who was an impressionist, did mm. the most amazing impressions, could do everything. So he, Robin and I worked on Blinky Bill and then Tabaluga and then through through Yoram Gross Studios. That's how I got into animation, working with them. So working with Keith, who who is an amazing impressionist, I guess probably left a little bit of an impression on me because, you know, he would say, oh, why doesn't this character, you know, sound a, a little bit like a bit of cross between Elmer Fudd and John Howard, you know, he'd just, mm. he'd, he'd pick, you know, some things and kind of come up with a character like that. So I kind of, I think I kind of learnt from him. Yeah. yeah. Even though there's a visual to go with it, the performance style, it has to be kind of bigger or at least you have to put more personality into the voice than say, you know, on stage. Yeah. I think that's the key for most voice stuff is that you, you have to give more than you think. Mm. Even though the last couple of years, I think for the, tone of voiceover work in in Australia has changed. Oh, yes, how so? Uh, it's become that real natural deadpan sort of thing, you know. A lot of it, I feel like it's gone, it's gone back, it's gone from, you know, the Kev Goldsby days when everything was like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's just made a... It's, it's all very Slowly flat. over the years, now it's that real flat thing. Everything's got to be really flat and that, you know, like that. So there's been a big <laughs> shift. But when I first started, yeah, you, you did have to give a little bit more for voice stuff, yeah. more than you think, you know, put a smile on your face and be a little bit bigger. And animation, you know, even more so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that on steroids. Like the voices are big. Like doing an animation session is it's really hard work. It's really tiring. I mean, you've seen all the footage of those, you know, they always show people when they're doing, like Robin Williams when he was yeah. doing LA. It's, they're big performances. You've got to give a pretty big performance, I think, for animation. Yeah, otherwise it does just sound flat. Otherwise it, it sounds like a person, yeah. You're doing a cartoon, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, our next uh, track of music is from the world of musical theatre, Jamie. Why have you chosen this one? Well, this harks back to, uh, as I was saying, my watching my parents doing amateur musicals. Mm -hmm. And I remember very vividly, I wanted to pick something from a musical. And I was going to pick something from Sondheim because he's probably my favourite musical writer. But I think it's really hard to pick a Sondheim song that I can have some, any sort of anecdote or feeling about because they're all... I don't know. Some of them are real cliches and uh, I could have picked, you know, something from Sunday in the Park, but I didn't. <laughs> I picked this, uh, I picked As Long As He Needs Me from Oliver because I remember very vividly as a young boy sitting in the audience of at Willoughby Musical Society and watching whoever was playing um, Nancy sing As Long As He Needs Me and just being blown away by the emotion and the, how emotive these performances are and how... Uh, I think realising for the first time that through song, you know, that this is what musicals can do. Through song, they, you know, they're these great shortcuts to our emotions and it's a great way of expressing emotion that hits you very hard, which is why we all love musicals. It's when someone bursts into song, you know, you just it's just a dagger to the heart for some reason, you know, it's because it's an indefinable thing, I guess. Thinks he should, but all the same, 
Dexter from the 1994 London Palladium cast recording for As Long As He Needs Me from Oliver. The choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Jamie Oxenbold. So Jamie, you mentioned that uh, bit before we had to sing on stage in whatever style, it, <laughs> to whatever standard <laughs> yeah. it was required, but obviously you've never felt the musical theatre bug to get out there. Oh, I've, I've felt it. I've just, if I could wave a magic wand and do, do anything, it would to give me a singing voice. I would love to be able to sing. You couldn't do that kind of talking style of singing. Like, you know, <laughs> do the Rex Harris. Rex Harrison style. <laughs> <laughs> I probably could. There's just not that many. There's not much call for it. <laughs> You've got the facial hair for it now. <laughs> yeah, well, this is for the play. <laughs> yeah, <I'll... laughs> This isn't my normal facial hair. I didn't want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I know. People keep looking at me in the street and, and I go, what? Oh, that's right. I've got these huge mutton chops. <laughs> um, perhaps at the opposite end of the spectrum of, you know, kids' cartoons is Shakespeare because you've done... Bell Shakespeare. Uh, do you have a good relationship with the Bard and his I, work? I haven't. Honestly, I haven't done enough to be. I wish I'd done more. I've done a few. I've done, you know, five or six probably. And I love it. I absolutely love it like every actor because it's just, you know, the, the language is just incredible and it's not like anything else to sink your teeth into. Is it actually easier or harder to learn? I think it's easier really? to learn, yeah. Because it's so well written, because it's in verse, well, not all of it, but the verse stuff, um, as long as you understand what you're saying, mm. and sometimes you don't, sometimes there's things that go, I have no idea what this bodkin come, you know, thing means, but as long as you understand what the images are and, and, and what the language is saying, I, I find it really easy because it's so, you know, it's evocative. And good writing is always easy to learn. That's across the board, you know. Good, mm. good writing's easy. Like if you're doing a Pinter play or or, or, or Tennessee Williams, for instance, mm. I've done a couple of Tennessee Williams plays, they're really easy to learn, I find them, because they're just, the dialogue is so sparse and perfect and, you know, well-crafted. It's simple to learn. Mm. When you were a kid at school, did you think that about Shakespeare at the time, even being interested in, in drama and so on? Oh, God, no. was it kind of... Something a bit scary. No, it was a bit scary. You know, we had to study it at yeah. school and it was incomprehensible to me. It was like, what? I have no... I yeah. didn't fall in love with it at all. Yeah. I wasn't one of those actors who, like, you know, walked around with Shakespeare or, or even ever dreamt of doing it. It wasn't my genre. It wasn't It wasn't something I dreamt of doing. If someone said at school, what do you want to do, it would 
you know, what's your dream role? It wouldn't have been a Shakespeare. It wouldn't have been, I want to play Hamlet. I never want to play Hamlet. You know, I've never wanted to play Hamlet and I never will. And I never, you know, in fact, I wrote a play called The Spear Carrier, which was on at the ensemble a few years ago. And it's about a spear carrier who's in a production of Hamlet who admits to, and it's basically his inner monologue. And he goes, I am never going to play Hamlet. So (laughs) I think that was very cathartic for me. You know, I love, I've loved what I've done and I'd love to do more. And I think as I get older, I think I'd be better at it. Mm. Yeah. Because also the way Shakespeare's have been performed have, has changed in our lifetime, hasn't it? Like yeah. back in the 80s or something, they were all very, in the 70s and stuff, it was all kind of very staid and, and, and yeah. formal, whereas now they, they really look for the humour and it's much a much lighter touch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, def- and mess with the Mess with a, it, yeah. yeah. In so, a good way. In a great way, yeah. 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 Awesome. So what do you like to do to chill out? I swim. I do uh, laps down at Bondi. I live in Bondi, so oh, nice. I go to the go to the beach a lot. I watch a lot of television. Do you? Yeah. I not l- many actors admit to that, you know. I love <laughs> watching TV. Me and my partner love good TV, and and we don't feel guilty. We're at, at an age now where we go. I don't feel guilty about the fact that I love. You know, we're in a the golden age of television over the last ten years, and. I just think a good, I love a good TV series, mm. sitting down on the couch and there's nothing greater than it. With nothing to do, we can watch two, three episodes yeah. of, of... So you binge, do you? We binge. Yeah. We're big binges. So yeah. what, what are you watching now? What did we just finish? Oh, The Bear. We just finished The Bear, which I thought was great. Mm. Uh, second season of that. Um, we just started The Crown. As in the new season? The new season. Not from scratch? No. No, we've been <laughs> going with The Crown from scratch and there's a new season out now. So yeah. we just started that. Which is okay, but I think uh, they, peaked. Have lost they peaked yes, earlier on. Yeah. I heard someone say that uh, the problem is that we know too much about the era that the crown's in now. So there was a yeah. sense of discovery about those earlier seasons. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's all a bit modern now, and yeah, you're just waiting for stuff to happen. That yeah. you know, I remember where I was when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we're showing our age. Well, Jamie Oxenbold, it's been absolutely awesome having you here today. But before I let you go, you have one more piece of music to introduce, and that's some opera. Where's this one come from? Well, I thought I'd better put a bit of opera in there because I did a couple of operas just recently and absolutely not fell in love with it but was just gobsmacked by how the the art form. I was never been an, an opera fan and I've seen maybe a couple of operas in my life. What a philistine I am. But I did Ernani at the Italian opera at the Opera House a couple of years ago, and just and being that close to the singers and that close to the orchestra, I was just like swept away by the power of it and the and and this song, uh, the Pearl Fishers Bizet, the Pearl Fishers duet, was uh, my father's favourite piece of music, and he would always put it on when he'd had a few drinks because it just always sounded really beautiful to me, and 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 it's a very evocative of of my dad because. He he loved it, and it would always make him cry, oh. whenever he played this. So he'd he'd put it on and go, "This is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard." Jamie Oxenvold, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Absolute pleasure, thank you. Actor and writer Jamie Oxenvold. He's starring in Midnight Murder at Hamlington Hall, which is co-written with the play's director Mark Kilmurray. It's on at the Ensemble Theatre from December one through January fourteen. Get along to ensemble.com.au for more information and for tickets. And while you're there, don't forget to browse their 2024 season. You can subscribe to as few as three plays and there are plenty to choose from. 
That's the program for today. Catch up on past episodes at 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation or via the 2MBS app, downloadable from the Apple Store and Google Play. You can also follow the show in your podcast app of choice. Just search for 2MBS In Conversation. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Hey.